Welcome to our Catechism class. It's a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help you learn Christian doctrine with a warm and practical application. Each lesson has its own study guide, and the web link to find that guide can be found in the episode notes. Okay, let's start the lesson. So, welcome. Welcome indeed to our Catechism class. Today we're looking at Lord's Day 21, question 55, and our subject is the forgiveness of sins, a doctrine that is absolutely core to the Christian faith. I think it's probably unique to Christianity. Most of the world's so-called great religions are purely works-based. In Islam, and Judaism, and Hinduism, you allegedly attain eternal blessedness of some sort, through your own religious efforts, through your prayers, through your fasting, through your charitable works, through your inward meditation, whatever. Christianity is different. Only Christianity is different. Christians believe that no works of ours can benefit us or make us in any way acceptable to God. It is only the work of Christ on the cross that can save us. Our works, even our most righteous works, are as polluted as filthy rags in the sight of God, and they deserve only eternal condemnation. Everything we do is sinful because we are sinners, and those sins cannot be overlooked by God, but they can be forgiven. And that's what makes Christianity totally unique, totally different, the forgiveness of sins through God's grace alone. So our catechist asks us, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And the answer we must give is, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature, against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So the very first thing we want to note is that the Catechist teaches us that God is satisfied with Christ's atoning work, with his sacrifice. The Catechist says, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins. I want to read some verses from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God has forgotten my sins, but God does not suffer from amnesia. He has deliberately forgotten my sins. 
He has blotted them out of his memory by providing a means for them to be forgiven, and he does that because of Christ. The Catechist speaks of Christ's satisfaction. God is just, and perfect justice is found in no other. Every judicial system in this world is flawed. There are sometimes very serious miscarriages of justice, and sadly, because of judicial failures or because of police misbehaviour, people have been given custodial sentences that they did not deserve. In some countries, including some American states, people have even gone to the gas chamber or to the electric chair, pleading their innocence because of the failure of justice. But God's justice never fails. God's justice sees all of our sins. It weighs up our lives, not against human standards, but against God's standards, against the law of God, summarised in the Ten Commandments, and finds us wanting, finds us guilty. And there is nothing we can do, for the holiness of God is also perfect, and God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And because our sins condemn us, we must be excluded from God's presence for all of eternity. But we can't pay a fine. Not even in purgatory if you believed in that. Not in this life. We can't do some good work or pay into a church or do some religious liturgy to satisfy God's demand for justice. We can't do any of those things. We can never pay the price that would be needed to satisfy the divine justice. We are condemned already under the law of God. In John 13, verse 17, we read this. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Only Jesus could pay for sin. Jesus never broke God's law, and his life was pleasing to the Father. And when he died at the cross, God's perfect divine justice was completely satisfied. So the debt for my sin, my rebellion against God, has been paid, and I am able to be forgiven, and that forgiveness is freely granted. Here's the words of a popular hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Or here's the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians 5 and verse 18. I all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin 
to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God forgives our sins. He does it out of pure mercy and free love on account of the intercession and satisfaction of Christ, applied by faith alone without any works or any merits on my part. But even though my sins are forgiven and forgotten, I still sin. The Catechist adds to his previous statement, nor my sinful nature, against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ. Our teacher in the Catechism doesn't believe in sinless perfection. Even though my sins are forgiven, that doesn't mean I stop sinning. Every day that I have in this life is a struggle. It's a struggle against temptation, a struggle against my own sinful thoughts and the sinful urges of my heart. I will be tormented by my own pride, by self-righteousness, by covetousness, by lies, by sinful desires, and there will not be a single minute of life that I can afford to relax my guard against the world, the flesh, and the devil. For more help with that, carefully read Paul's words in Romans 7, verse 21 to verse 25. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Reformers and the Puritans often referred to that battle as the mortification of sin. Just take a moment to think of the consequences, to think of the practical problems that persist in our sinful nature. It means, for example, that I can never trust my heart. Well, of course, by using the word heart, I'm not thinking about the bodily organ in the human thorax, the pump that circulates the blood around the body. I'm thinking of the biblical application of the word, the innermost being of man, the sensual urges, the passions, the personality, the soul. In that sense, my heart will lead me astray. It will deceive me, for it is deceitful and desperately wicked. A lady I knew once spoke of a fellow worker once she'd shared an office with in the Northern Ireland Civil Service, and who had later committed some minor misdemeanour. And she said to me that she believed that that person was essentially good-hearted, just badly advised after all. And she went on, you know, we're really all good at heart, aren't we? My reply really shocked her. No, we're not. We're wicked, guilty sinners, and that sin springs out of the wickedness of the heart. She looked at me. Oh, Reverend McAvoy, you can't really believe that. You have to see the good in people like Jesus did. Me? Really? Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. So don't trust your heart, your feelings, your emotional urges. Doing so has led astray many's a man or a woman. Somebody might argue, but I have a new heart, because it says so in Ezekiel 36 and 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's true. You do have a new heart. You do have new thoughts and desires. Of course you do, or you wouldn't be listening to this. But that new heart is what inclines you to do what God commands. And that new heart makes you sorrow deeply when you fail him. It's that new heart that causes you to want to repent. And that's what Paul means when he talks about the law of God according to the inward man, even though he still struggled with sin throughout his life. It's why he wrote in Romans 7 and verse 19, For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Not only does this continuing sin within my heart mean that I can never trust my heart, but it also makes me a bit nervous because God knows my inward thoughts. I remember the minister one time making a proposal at a business meeting and coming up against some stinging criticism of his motives, replying to that criticism by arguing, God knows my heart. I wasn't able to say anything at the time, but I remember thinking somewhat sceptically, and you mean you're happy about that? The fact that God sees right down into the depths of my sinful heart should make me very nervous indeed. It would make me want the Lord to search my heart every day and with the help of the Holy Spirit to reveal any unconfessed sin that lies buried there and bring it out into the open so that I can confess it before God. And what about people who give you advice, who give you advice to just follow your heart? That's the most dangerous lifestyle advice ever. It's the mantra of the age. It's the advice given to teenagers with gender confusion and unwanted homosexual urges and lifestyle choices, even down to appearance and clothing. Just follow your heart. Don't do it. You will go astray. Don't give your subjective feelings and your easily manipulated urges any role in guiding your life's paths. Proverbs 16 and 25 warns us, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Place your destiny and your direction in the hands of God, in the guidance and direction given by God's objective, never-changing word. Okay, let's get back to the issue of my sinful nature. If I have to battle against the sinful urges of my wicked heart all my life, then how can I ever come to know the presence of God, either in this life or in the life to come? We need to learn another new term so that we can understand what our teacher means when he says that God will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ. Let's learn about Christ's act of obedience. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Do you remember the words of that hymn? Because the sinless Saviour died. Not only did Jesus die the death that atones for our sins, to pay the price that we could never pay, but he lived a perfect life, a life that we could never live. His perfect life is sometimes called his active obedience while his submission to the Father's will in going to the cross is referred to as his passive obedience. If you look at Matthew 26 and verse 39, we read there that Jesus went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, 
saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So the passive obedience of Christ in submitting to the eternal plan of redemption. But in his earthly life, he fully obeyed the laws of God, right to the very letter. He was actively obedient. At the cross, that act of obedience of Christ, his perfect righteousness under the law, was transferred to me. Look at Second Corinthians 5 and 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. It is counted as mine, so that when God looks at us sinful human beings with our constant failings and our daily struggles against the flesh, he sees Christ. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness. We stand before God and we are declared to be not guilty, not because we have never sinned, but because Jesus never sinned. Let's go back to that hymn again. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. At one with him I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Saviour and my God. And because of all that there is no condemnation. Here's our instructor again that I may never come into condemnation. And he's just echoing the words of Jesus in John 5 and verse 24. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And Paul in Romans 8 and 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we've learned two new terms in this lesson. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten only because Christ's death has satisfied the demands of the unyielding, perfect justice of God. And Christ's perfect life, his act of obedience, his righteousness under the law, imputed to me, enables me, a worthless sinner, to enter into the presence of God in prayer, in communion, in praise, and one day in glory. And for those who believe in him, there is now therefore no condemnation. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.